The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube. Crystal and David Downing are co-directors of the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College in Illinois. And if you're unfamiliar with the center, they promote the work of the seven British Christian writers that are often clumped together as the Inklings, even though several of them are unofficial Inklings, George MacDonald and G.K. Chesterton, who preceded the four actual Inklings, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, and Charles Williams, as well as Dorothy Sayers, who was called by her biographer to be an honorary Inkling, but was never actually a member of the all-male Oxford group. <laughs> David has written four scholarly books on C.S. Lewis, including Planets in Peril, The Most Reluctant Convert, Into the Wardrobe, and Into the Region of Awe, which I actually have several of those. This is my Inklings bookshelf back here. Ah. <laughs> going on? So I have those books behind me. Um, and he also wrote a novel. Did you know that I read your novel? No, I didn't realize that. Thank you. It was actually my introduction to your work because it sounded like it was going to be so much fun. It was the getting to meet the Inklings and have cameos with Lewis. And so I picked it up and thought it was wonderful. So if anybody is looking for a Christmas read, Looking for the King is a great book to read for Christmas. Uh, and then Crystal is the author of five books, including writing performances, the stages of Dorothy L. Sayers. That's kind of a fun play on words in that title. Uh, How Postmodern Serves My Faith, Changing Signs of Truth, Salvation from Cinema, The Medium is the Message, and most recently, Subversive, about Christ's culture and the shocking Dorothy L. Sayers. I have invited them both to tell about Sayers and Lewis in specific conversations with the liberal arts. What do these two great writers have to say about what the liberal arts are, um, especially in the middle of the 1940s, they're in the middle of war. Why were they talking so much about education Right? There's violence, there's crisis, and yet at the same time, Lewis is giving talks on the BBC that turn into the abolition of man, and Sayers is giving a talk on the lost tools of learning right after the war. Uh, they both also wrote campus novels, novels that take place in the sphere of the academy. So I think mm -hmm. the academy is a major concern in Lewis's That Hideous Strength, as well as in Sayers' Gaudy Night. And so I wanted to ask um, both David and Crystal to talk about those works in particular, the essays, the nonfiction, and the fiction, but also because they're both teachers. And if you've listened to the Way Center podcast, you know that they sound like excellent teachers. And so they probably have a lot to add to the conversation of liberal arts in general. So it's with that that I very much am thankful and invite you to join this conversation. So thank you guys for coming. Thanks. It's wonderful. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, I'm going to start really broad at first. Um, Sayers and Lewis are writing in the middle of World War II. I think 2020 has kind of felt like we are in the middle of a war. We're at least under siege in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think it's important to kind of ask the question for ourselves, why talk about these things in the middle of what feels like crisis, in the middle of what feels like we're under siege? Um, why did Lewis and Sayers talk about it in this way? And what can we gain from, from hearing why they did during this time? 
David, do you want to talk about learning in wartime? Uh, yes, when the war broke out, World War II in the fall of 1939, Lewis gave a famous sermon called Learning in Wartime. And here they were, England, uh, everyone was being called to the colors and being sent abroad. And they, others were saying, what are we doing sitting here in classrooms in Oxford, uh, reading Latin and Greek authors and learning uh, uh, philosophy and, and great literature? And so Lewis gave this sermon and he said, that's a good question. Um, it, it's, it almost seems like Nero fiddling while Rome burns. Here the world is on fire and we're sitting here back at the university studying great books. And he says, well, for a Christian, the tragedy of Nero, even worse that, that he fiddled while Rome burned, is that he fiddled when his soul was on the edge of hell. Mm -hmm. And so he said, as a Christian, you have to ask, why are we even pursuing any kind of aesthetic culture or philosophical culture when people's uh, souls are at stake. Mm -hmm. And he said, most Christians realize eventually that you can't spend your entire life's energy in soul saving, mm -hmm. that the soul is too infinite for that. And he said, if uh, a Christian can stand up to the idea that there's more to life than just uh, looking after your souls, then certainly uh, other concerns in life can stand up to that. He said, if you look at history, uh, Periods that can seem very uh, periods that seem very tranquil and peaceful were actually full of controversies and plagues and alarms, and uh, there's always some reason to say, "Well, things aren't settled enough for me to do my studies. There's too many important things, too many urgent things pressing upon my mind." And so he said, uh, "War isn't really a new condition; it's just an exaggeration of the entire human condition, which is things are never really right to settle down." and uh, cultivate your mind unless you insist upon it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really a great uh, opening remark in this sermon. Everything he says, as you say, applies to COVID. Mm -hmm. He says, if you say, well, I'm just gonna dedicate my entire life and energy and soul to fighting this war or to saving people's souls, you're, and you neglect intellectual cultivation and spiritual cultivation, you're not really going to leave culture behind. You're just going to replace uh, good culture with bad culture or good philosophy with bad philosophy. So he remembers himself on the battle line. He was there in the trenches of World War I, but he said, it's not all war. There's a lot of time people uh, play checkers and talk about literature and talk about the books they're reading. And he just said, the human soul is so much larger than any one activity, even war, that we're all gonna find a place to cultivate our minds and our spirits, regardless of our environment. It really is a classic uh, sermon that I, is very uh, relevant right now to our situation with the quarantine. Mm -hmm. What I like about David's comments and based on what C.S. Lewis said, is this emphasis on both and thinking, which I think is a fundamental component of a liberal arts education that you are trained to look at both sides of the issue. And the trouble is war tends to reduce things to either or categories, where there's the good guys versus the bad guys. Um, the, my ideology is totally right, yours is totally wrong. And a good example of that is the radio plays that Dorothy Sayers was writing during the Battle of Britain she had been commissioned to do 12 broadcasts 
about the life of Jesus. And she spent a year rereading the gospels uh, in the original Greek, no less, uh, reading Bible commentaries, histories to deliver the message as accurately as possible. But because it was in the middle of the war, people just wanted safe, comfortable, traditional categories. And they freaked out because Sayers did not use King James English. And they totally rejected the content of her plays. Christians all over England set up a censorship campaign demanding these plays be taken off the air. They wrote letters to Winston Churchill, but it was actually discussed in Parliament. And um, what's interesting then in later plays, and luckily Sayers held her ground, um, and why it's lucky she held her ground, but she was a pretty feisty person, so she would, is because of this scandal that Christians set up that you can't use a different language because only this language gets us to the truth and all other languages can't get us to the truth. Thousands of people who would not normally listen to religious broadcasting tuned in because it was scandalous. They wanted to get in on, ooh, this is juicy. And for the first time in their lives, they understood the gospel message. She had educated them. So in one of her later plays that uh, she wrote, she aligned people who have simplistic either or categories, like my side is right, your side is wrong, hence my side is right, is justified to kill your side. She aligned both, both the right and the left with the Nazis. And um, then after the war, she, um, 1946, she wrote a play that pursues this issue of critical thinking. And it's called The Just Vengeance. And she, there's a play on words there, both and play on words, where is war just vengeance, simply vengeance? Or is war just vengeance? Meaning, is it justice that we are um, pursuing? And of course, if any war seems justified, it's the war against Hitler and all the despicable things he was doing. But even then, Sayers was saying, no, a critical thinker still does not reduce things to um, uh, easy binaries. And um, she has, towards the end of the play, this great phrase that I love to repeat. She says, or she has one of her characters say, we are all both Cain and Abel. We are all both victimizers and victims. You know, that brings ahead a question. And so I will have to like go back and forth because <laughs> you just worked to the question that I had with, you know, Lewis wrote The Abolition of Man and then it turned into fiction. And Sayers, of course, wrote fiction and she wrote essays. Is there something about her educating through fiction that both Sayers and Lewis thought was a different medium, had different purposes, had different ways of educating than the didacticism maybe found in the nonfiction? 
Um, I don't know, Crystal, if you want to start and then David jump in and talk about um, the abolition of man and, and that hideous strength. Well, this is one of the primary points that we, primary reasons why we joined the Marion E. Wade Center, because all our authors are fiction writers who are committed to communicating truth through fiction, who um, recognize that you can break through barriers via the imagination. Whereas many times didacticism, especially if it uses language people are familiar with, they, because of their own prejudices, they'll just turn you off. And yeah, there's no justifying their prejudices, but if you really wanna communicate the truth of the gospel, how do you get around prejudices? C.S. Lewis's famous line, of course, everybody knows is how do you get beyond uh, those watchful dragons? And what Sayers would say is there's watchful dragons on both the right and the left, whereas critical thinking is a delicate balance in between. And David, maybe you can pick up um, Lewis's comments well, on the- First of all, you stole my quotations. Uh, that was the quotation for the Narnia Chronicles. He said so many people, when they think of Christian faith or theology, they think of quiet, reverent church sanctuaries and stained glass windows mm -hmm. and uh, somewhat dull uh, Sunday school lessons. Mm -hmm. And so he wanted to retell the stories in a way that we get past those, those watchful dragons. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot, of, as you say, there's a lot of watchful dragons. After he wrote uh, to, um, uh, Out of the Silent Planets, he, he basically Ransom, who's a Christian who gets abducted and carried off to Mars, and he mm. discovers the medieval worldview is right after all. There really is a uh, ruler of the universe. The other planets are all in harmony with that ruler, but we are the silent planet. When you read the title, you think, oh, I wonder what dark, remote place that is. And then you find out from the rest of the universe's point of view, we're the dark, remote place because our uh, planetary ruler has rebelled against the the uh, sovereign order of the universe. And uh, after he wrote it, uh, he said that 60 reviewers uh, reviewed it and only two of them noticed that there was any Christian theology embedded in the story. In fact, one of them said, I'm surprised that such a uh, man of conviction such as Lewis should have put so little of his worldview into the story. So he, he wrote to a friend, I've discovered that we can now smuggle any amount of theology into fiction under the guise of romance without people knowing it. So he definitely felt like uh, the intellect puts up defenses immediately. It immediately says, well, I don't agree with that, or that's not the way I was taught, or that's not the tradition I was raised in. Whereas the imagination, it's a different portal. It's kind of a wormhole to the consciousness that we don't get through traditional uh, writing. And as you say, he often wrote parallel stories. He wrote The Abolition of Man, or he gave a, a famous series of lectures about the loss of objective truth and the loss of the basic premise is the old view of human nature was the head was the seat of intellect and reasoning. The belly is the seat of appetites and physical needs. But And both of those come naturally. You don't have to be taught to be hungry and you don't have to be taught to talk particularly to start trying to figure out your situation. But they believe that the middle section with the chest, which is the seat of sentiments and moral judgments and aesthetic judgments, and those don't come naturally. They have to be cultivated. 
So Lewis said that nowadays we have men without chest uh, because they either think of things in terms of rational utility or in terms of their physical needs and lust and appetites. But we have to train people to learn how to make good moral judgments and good aesthetic judgments. I mentioned out of the silent planet, even before abolition of man, uh, we have Weston, who's this crack brain scientist who wants to colonize all the other planets and uh, turn them into sanctuaries for human beings. And he doesn't care at all about the other species because he has no, his uh, moral sense is utterly dead. He actually says, I have no time for humanities and philosophy and all that trash. He's strictly functional. But the other person who kidnapped Ransom is divine. And he's only thinking of how he's going to make money, how he's going to have more room for pleasure. So right there, there are two men without chest. They have no moral sensibilities. And it takes a Christian and someone uh, trained in the humanities to try to bring some balance to that situation. And he becomes the unlikely hero of the story. Well, and I think you're bringing up a connection even with Sayers because Ransom is a philologist, right? Ransom is right. someone who prioritizes language. Is there a role that language plays in the cultivation of that kind of chest creation um, in a way that, you know, the studies of Weston or the consumerism or what you call the economy right. of exchange in your book, Crystal, that, that uh, Divine or Lord Feverstone lives according to, is there a way to train against those two mentalities by focusing on languages? Mm. Mm. I definitely think that the learning of other languages helps in critical thinking because though there is truth, beauty, and goodness, many different cultures define beauty in different ways. Different eras define beauty in different ways, which just going to an art gallery tells you that. Um, and even goodness becomes defined in different ways, like things, some cultures where we hear that the Eskimos put their old people on an ice flow and just let them die. But how could they do that? But within their particular context, they are following their sense, their chest, their sense of the good. So this is once again, a both and issue. There are, um, the Tao exists that truth, beauty, and goodness are imperative, mm -hmm. but language helps us think about truth, beauty, and goodness in different ways. And I think the benefit of taking foreign languages exposes mm -hmm. you to that. Um, I remember when I was sitting for I had to pass three language exams to get a PhD. And it kind of makes me sad that a lot of PhD programs in English no longer require language exams. So let alone undergrad liberal arts, even doctoral programs have eliminated them. And to help me learn French, I was reading through the Bible in French. And in the edition I was using, every time a verse talked about um, sacrifice, the sacrifice acceptable to God, the word in the French translation was Holocaust. Yeah. And whoa, that illuminated a whole new way to think about scripture, God's relationship to the Jews. And it was by exposing myself to other languages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this explains Sayer's fascination with you 
If you want to change the way people think, if you want to break through barriers, if you want to sneak past those watchful dragons, you have to change your language. They're not gonna know French, but how can you provide alternate um, forms of linguistic approaches to the same truth? So the truth doesn't change, right? but how we talk about the truth changes. And anybody who learns a foreign language will recognize that. And so that it does make me um, very sad that, that many liberal arts colleges are just eliminating their foreign language departments. I understand why, but the trouble is also, and I um, just mm, within four years ago, I was teaching an intro to poetry course and a student in the course at a Christian college felt totally free to, um, because I, I was querying the students about values, mm -hmm. the importance of education. And the student just freely said, well, the only reason I'm in college is I wanna get a good job and make a lot of money. And this, this attitude, this, uh, which C.S. Lewis aligns with um, divine, is overpowering our students, but it's also because it's overpowering their parents. I would have students who would say to me, oh, I love these, this English class. I've just learned to think. And I said, well, why don't you become an English major? And, oh, my parents wouldn't let me. They want their investment back. They want me to get a good job. And not realizing that critical thinking is inherent to any good job. Uh, I've, uh, speaking of students, I've uh, taught business writing quite a bit as well as my literature courses throughout my career. And one time uh, at homecoming, I was talking to a student who was about 15 years out from uh, being in my class. And she said, when I took your business writing class, almost everything you taught me about business is outdated, but everything you taught me about writing, I still use every day. Clear thinking and clear writing and avoiding jargon was all still valuable. But when I was teaching her, we were learning web page design and we were learning the commands of HTML and that sort of thing. And she said, virtually everything we did about web page design was totally obsolete. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting, uh, which things do you learn in college are transferable and permanent additions to your uh, rhetorical skill or your preparation to be a citizen after graduating and which things are going to keep changing and evolving and, and become obsolete eventually. Yeah, and of course, language is one of those things, but also just e English language, having any power mastery right. over your own language, right? I mean, that's one of the issues that comes up in Abolition of Man and in that hideous strength. Right. Abolition of Man, Lewis says, once to kill becomes to liquidate. Right. You're able to get away with violence. And in that hideous strength, Mark is told to camouflage everything with right. language and and in the you know opposition to this you have ransom and the true language and true meaning of words that comes out i mean there's something that's it's not just about its usefulness to get ahead in society and to be a good citizen but there's something morally reprehensible about the misuses of language right and in, in the lewis's fiction it's almost always excessive abstraction you don't see real things because you put them into these mental categories. Uh, as a matter of fact, people who misuse language, that is one of the main ways that you spot a villain in a, in a work of Lewis fiction. 
there's a great speech at the end of Out of the Silent Planet where this, this scientist is asked to uh, explain to the ruler of Mars why they think they have the right to colonize other planets. And he says, we have made great strides in technology and industrial uh, sophistication. Therefore, we feel, and the uh, archon of the other planet doesn't know English. So Ransom tries to translate. And he says, we have learned how to lift heavy things and to carry them <laughs> far away. Therefore, we have the right to kill you. And it's really a humorous passage because this, this glorious rhetoric sounds pretty good in the abstract. But when you turn it into... Uh, concrete terminology. It's, of course, ridiculous and, and reprehensible. I think one of the reasons that Sayers was effective at changing language to draw people to the truth, because there's both sides of it, right? It's not either or, once, once again, because you can change your language in order to manipulate people to do what you want them to do, or you can change your language to draw them and help them think in new ways about the truth. The problem comes is when people turn language into idols, that only certain language works to deliver the truth. I mean, and that's the protest that was set up um, over the man born to be king. And the, the ultimate irony of that is 80% of King James English that all these Christians, that is the true language of scripture, 80% of it is based on Tyndale's translations from the 1520s, um, translations for which Tyndale was strangled and burned at the stake because everybody knows the true language of scripture is Latin. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful that we don't fall into what Sayers calls a single singular piece of idolatry where we make I idols of our words. Mm -hmm. um, and she actually considered what this protectivism of King James English, she called it bibliolatry. Are you sure about your history, Crystal? I thought the King James Bible was dictated directly to King James. That was the, <laughs> that was the way I heard it. Uh, yeah. I'm gonna have to check into that again. Or, you know, there's that famous story and um, I'm sure it's apocryphal, although our associate director at the Wade said someone actually said something like this to her. That, well, if King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good yeah. we've all heard oh, yeah. that story. But yeah. I have someone yeah. who said she was in a conversation where someone said something like that. Uh, Lewis's word for uh, making language become empty was uh, verbicide. We have herbicides, but he decided a good word should be verbicide to kill a word. Yeah. Sometimes I, in England, you see these signs in the parks that say, let no one say and say it to your blame, this park was clean until you came. So Lewis quotes it, the way he puts it in his essay is, let no one say and say it to your blame, this word was clear until you came. Yeah. <laughs> that's wow. a variation on the slide. Yeah, that's fantastic. What are you thinking, Crystal? <laughs> well, I, I was thinking that, but there's sometimes words do have to be killed. And this, for example, go back to Tyndale. When he was translating the Bible, he went to back to the original Greek rather than just rely on um, the, uh, the Latin originals. Yeah. And he discovered that um, what had been translated from the Greek in the Latin Bible was a requirement for salvation is you have to do penance. Mm 
And that led to a thousand year tradition in the Christian church. Mm -hmm. To get salvation, you have to do penance. And he said, no, it just means repent. Mm -hmm. So he had to kill that do penance mm -hmm. in order to, um, and defy a thousand year old tradition mm -hmm. to go back to original Greek. So, you know, once again, it's both and. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot about languages because I just got done like rereading of all of the Inklings <laughs> because I'm teaching a course at the University of Dallas on the Inklings. So I was even reading Barfield for the first time, which I had never read Barfield. And of course, Barfield in the history of the English language, he talks about how um, words have to be understood within their context because right. Right. The evolution of human consciousness, it's the chron chronological snobbery idea, right? You have to actually go back and put on the armor of the night rather than try, you know, try to understand it from your perspective where you are in your limited cultural moment because you'll misunderstand the uses of the words. Um, and then if you combine that idea from Barfield with Lewis's idea on language, Sayer's idea on language, and then Tolkien's idea that you have to have language to create the world, right? And that if you don't have um, the right words for things, you don't actually know what the things are in themselves. So it seems like all of them combined, but they're coming from a tradition in which that's the way we considered language. We didn't consider it, it was beneficial for hum human improvement, or it would help you get a job in China. Like we didn't consider language in its utility, but it was actually world making. It, right. it helped us know our place among things and in reality. Do you think, I mean, do you think there's a way of, of restoring that or getting that back in the liberal arts, the, the vitality and necessity of language? Well, this isn't C.S. Lewis, but um, um, David Brooks wrote a book called The Second Mountain. And he says many people early in their careers, they want to get out of college, make money, establish a family, be successful, have a certain amount of social status. And their dream comes true and they accomplish it. And their life is only halfway over. And pretty much their life mission was to become comfortable and successful and have a certain amount of social status. And suddenly they're only 40 years old. They have the rest of their life to go and they've completed their mission. Mm -hmm. So for him, the second mountain is almost going back to this liberal arts attitude of how do I become a good leader? There's, there's a good essay by Lewis called Our English Syllabus, where he says that Aristotle said that education was to train a person to, uh, be able to operate skillfully and magnanimously and justly as a citizen, both in peace and war. Mm -hmm. And he says, in many, the old idea of liberal arts, as, as we all know, is that that was the free person. Often it was the tradesman who had to pick up a particular vocation or a trade and get uh, training rather than education. Uh, and so many ways people get back to that idea of, okay, I've accomplished a certain number of goals. Now, what do I do with the rest of my life? He actually says that training is for work, but education is for leisure. What do you do in terms of reading and thinking and socializing and being a good leader, being an empathetic listener? And those kind of skills often can get crowded out if you're too focused on what's my first job going to be? What's my salary going to be? I just read this morning, I think it's somewhat relevant. Someone asked him if he made a statement about plagiarism uh, in his courses and Lewis says, no, I don't make a statement about plagiarism. The whole point of education 
is to learn to express your own thoughts in your own words. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't explain that to my students anymore that I would tell them that you're supposed to learn how to wipe your own nose, I mean, to blow your own nose or wipe your own bottom. <laughs> and then he says, why would anyone set aside the free man's privilege of thinking your own thoughts and putting them in your own words for the slave's privilege of copying someone else? So even the way he attacks plagiarism to me had a great liberal arts foundation to it. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Yeah, I was thinking um, when I taught in the Czech Republic, I taught at Charles University several oh, years ago on a Fulbright. And when I was there, the students actually try to out cheat one another. Like uh -huh. who can get away with cheating the most? And it, it struck me the same way. Like, why, why would you do that? Like, why, why would you try to learn the least in the years that you're in school? Right. Right. It didn't make any sense to me. Well, and your use of the word leisure struck me because of course this goes back to language. Um, the Latin word scola, right? Or the Greek word scole means leisure. School means leisure, uh -huh. where we get that idea from. Um, but we no longer conflate those two identities that school should be the space for leisure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it should be at a university, right? Is that that should be the place where you have the leisure to contemplate the highest things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that this is what Sayers is getting at in the lost tools of learning, these things that have been lost and should not have been forgotten. Um, the ability to think, to, as Aristotle said, to love the things that are worth loving and to really dedicate ourselves to that task. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, it, from my perspective, her essay has had quite a bit of good come out of it because of the education, the classical education movement. Um, do you think that that is something that we could apply at the higher education level? Uh, what do you think she would even think of, and I know that's just conjecture, but what would she think of the classical education movement and the way that it's kind of formed itself out in K through 12? Two questions, I guess. Yeah, I don't know that much about it. I've read about it. And of course, I know about Douglas Wilson's, um, uh, what is that? Version of things. <laughs> yeah. Um, I forget the title of his book, but Reclaiming the Lost Tools of Learning or something like that. And that it has, um, even among scholars committed to classical uh, education, are, um, not in total agreement about Douglas um, Wilson's yeah. appropriation of Sayers' lost tools. But what I find fascinating is that Sayers is practicing what she's preaching and what I talk a lot about in my most, um, well, actually my last three, four books um, is to get people to think we need to change our language. Again, you don't change the, the truth that language points to, but to get people to see the truth, you have to change the language. And so she knew that these terms, grammar, uh, logic, and rhetoric, you say, okay, class today, we're gonna dis discuss grammar, rhetoric, and logic. And the students are going, ah, you know, kill me now. So what does she do? she just invents whole new language. And she says, you have to be a Paul Parrot, you have to be pert, and you have to be poetic. Mm -hmm. And you tell students that, and they suddenly go, what? No. You know, this is not the way we've heard of um, education before. And that's going to intrigue them. It's gonna draw them in the same way um, 
Thayer's used slang, contemporary slang for her disciples in Man Born to be King, and it drew people in. They saw the truth with new eyes through the new language that she was using. Uh, so hold on to the importance of those three categories, mm. but think of new ways to present them so that we can entice students rather than have them um, think, oh, same old, same old. Now, the one thing I can say about, about classically um, educated students, they're fantastic students when they get to college. I just love having those students. Mm. So I have nothing but praise for this entire movement. And I think Sayers would be delighted that she helped ignite it mm -hmm. um, through Douglas Wil or, um, yeah, Wilson's work. So yeah, my, I actually founded a classical school here in town. I, I'm the chair of the board for a classical school. So this is a big, classical education is huge for me. I have been teaching in higher ed for so many years and you're right the students who are most prepared for college are the ones who are classically educated. They're the ones who are most prepared for life. They don't, they don't suffer the same uh, performance anxiety, identity issues. They feel like they have a place at the table. They know how to articulate their thoughts well. It's just been amazing to me. My, my school does not look a lot like Douglas Wilson. I think there's been a lot of moves away from his right. version of things from the 1980s and 90s um, to where it is now. And really the emphasis has been on the ancients, on Let's and the medieval worldview, the way Lewis would have seen, um, kind of this resurgence or reclaiming of the medieval perspective. And I think if we consider classical education the way Sayers and Lewis had it as a reclaiming of language, ancient, I mean, Latin and Greek, um, a reclaiming even of the importance of language, and then also those tools of learning and that medieval perspective that I think is really important, mm -hmm. uh, which their work, of course. Mm -hmm. And Sayers, even the, the final passion of her life was translating into another language, Dante's Divine Comedy. Mm -hmm. And she made the Divine Comedy accessible um, when one of our nephews was at Colorado State and was taking a course in the great books at Colorado State. He, in the 1980s, was um, assigned essays written by Dorothy Sayers about the Divine Comedy. And his professor, who he had no sense was a Christian, recognized that Sayers um, was able to distill in accessible language the essence of what Dante was doing in, in a way that made it attractive rather than um, onerous. Even, I, isn't it interesting, I've seen the, the change since I started teaching, and I've been teaching for over 20 years, that when I started, they would talk about general education. You have to have your general education courses. And um, the trouble is that word general became associated with, oh, this is the stuff. It's just the general stuff. You have to get out of the way. In fact, when I was advising students, they would come to my office and say, well, I'm gonna get my um, art history out of the way this semester. Mm -hmm. And the very word general education was um, communicating something that destabilized the liberal arts. And in the last several years, I've seen colleges 
my college back in Pennsylvania and Wheaton College does this, they now call it the core education. This is the core of what it means to be an educated person. And just changing the word from general to core is gonna change the way um, students perceive it. Yeah. Well, I have to get in a comment on Lewis's view of American education. Yeah. Uh, in British education, it's mainly attending lectures, reading books, and then writing papers. And you read the paper to your tutor every week and you go over and comment on it. And uh, he was talking to an American and said, well, in America, we take uh, a course for 15 weeks, and if we pass it, we get four credits, and then we take another course. And once you've accumulated enough credits, then you're a college graduate or university graduate. And Lewis said, that sounds to me like a, a horse show in which you don't judge the horses by their speed or their strength. You judge them by how much hay you've, you've fed them over the past few years. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I absolutely love that because one of my biggest complaints, I mean, I've, I've stepped a little bit outside the academy. I'm a scholar in residence this year. I resigned my job because faculty efficiency ratios were increasing. Oh. <laughs> right. So I didn't, I didn't want to increase my faculty efficiency ratio. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just sounded like something out of that hideous strength. And so yeah. I've chosen to be a, a scholar in residence at UD this year, but even at UD, because they're trying to ensure the quality of the online education, I have to fill out a, a Bloom's taxonomy chart that matches my course oh. objectives. With. <laughs> and I think I've been thinking of Lewis the whole time. Can you imagine someone asking C.S. Lewis to fill out a Bloom's taxonomy chart? Yeah, <laughs> well, they hit his strength. They have this pragmatometer. They're trying to measure everybody's efficiency. Talk about uh, art anticipating life. He's writing it back in the mid 40s. He's making fun of this efficiency experts trying to apply their insights to education. Yeah. How do we change that? How, I mean, is there a way to actually, I'm just thinking really big here because this is what I'm hoping for. Is there a way to get that kind of education back or is it completely lost? Is there a way to overturn the university system where all the things that are poor about it that are actually making people move away from it could be change that we could not just change the vocabulary which i would love to do right but by changing the vocabulary we could change the ideas we could change the way people view these things that's a good question uh, it, americans are very results oriented and the two places you get results are scientific results and business results you know what is your bottom line what are the profits and what's happening more and more is business models are being applied to education and I think it's really a category mistake. Uh, my dad grew up with the Navigators and their idea was evangelism and cultivating disciples of Christ. But he was required to fill out a monthly form on how many people did you, new people did you meet today? How many people did you share Christ with? How many people made a commitment? And it was a total business model for being a Christian in the world. And even back then he really rebelled against trying to use that business model for being a Christian. And I think we're getting a double whammy now in Christian education because we get the business model of assessments that you're supposed to be able to spell out exactly how that student grew in 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. But then we also have the business model of, of Christian maturation. So I wish we could convince people that the results, the bottom line uh, model or the business model is got to be replaced with something which is talks about the person's growth over a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Part of it is we need to educate even Christian college professors 
that who who have bought into the new language about um, the the dominance of math, science, technology, the STEM courses. I actually had someone um, at one college where I taught, and I've taught it one, two, three, four. So you can't necessarily figure out where it was, but um, said to me well, all you guys do in English is just have people read stories, you know, whereas we're teaching them scientific theories. And um, I was amused when I went back to look at Gaudy Knight, since you had mentioned that as you reached out to us. And there is this brief allusion to an essay by C.P. Snow in Gaudy Knight. I mean, Sayer's novel is definitely about the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. And she just fills it with quotations and allusions to what a classically educated person should know. Mm-hmm. But the story she alludes to is called The Search by C.P. Snow. It was written in 1934. And it's about someone who is at, Com- at Cambridge so in the early 30s, who's feeling this tension between literature and science. And of course, C.P. Snow became famous um, for his 1959 text called The Two Cultures and the Scientific Revolution. And he was saying that he saw there's this major tension between science and humanities. And he actually said, he was arguing in 1959 that um, the quality of education is on decline because of this tension between the two cultures. So this is not something totally new, but it's obviously something that Sayers by just picking up and making that little illusion, even though the two cultures wasn't published until 59, two years after her death, she recognized Snow, C.P. Snow was onto something here. Yeah, well, we have about five minutes to wrap up because I don't want to take your whole day, even though I could take it forever. If you could make one recommendation, maybe, to your colleagues or to your students about ways to overturn this? Like if there were some, I I didn't prepare you for this question. I'm just thinking from where we're coming from, I would love to know what actions are next, right? What what should people be doing if they wanna have their little little move forward and away from this decline? I think we need to have one of these um, post-apocalyptic nuclear movies where we just Everything goes to the ground, and then we go back to basics. Uh, part of it is the education has become so expensive, and they've become kind of these country clubs for adolescents in terms of, when I went to college, you could literally have a summer job, get a scholarship, get a little help from your parents, and not have to take out uh, serious loans. And nowadays, it, uh, college is so expensive because they have so many amenities and so many offices, which are somewhat... Uh, para-educational rather than educational. And I think students, because tuition is so high, their parents put pressure on them to make sure they choose a profitable major or a profitable career. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to look at models of education that maintain academic rigor without um, so much of the amenities and the extras that make, make campus life really comfortable and wonderful, but they're becoming unaffordable. The college I was at decided to build a $15 million field house. And the explanation was, well, everybody else we compete with has a field house, so we have to have a field house. And it was really more of a marketing decision than do our students want it? Will they use it? Is, it, is there 
uh, life on campus being impoverished by not having it. And it really didn't come down to those questions. It came down to keeping up with the, uh, with the competition. So I think that would be my suggestion. That's great, thank you. And maybe there's hope. David joked about we need an apocalypse, um, but there has been something of a financial apocalypse um, for liberal arts colleges. Many of them are closing. And part of it, what happened, I don't know, it was probably the 80s and 90s where you get the celebrity professor phenomenon and professor salaries skyrocketed and many of them maybe taught one course a year and they were pulling down salaries of over $100,000 because you wanted the prestige professors. And I, I'm hoping we might have a glimmer that that is being destabilized now. I do know a lot of colleges are rethinking the tenure system where you just put in your seven years and you automatically get tenure. And uh, David and I have both been at, and we've both taught at many institutions, so you can't identify which ones I'm, we're talking about, but where people, as soon as they got tenure, they stopped publishing, they stopped, and because they knew unless they did something um, totally destructive that, um, they would have tenure for life and it, they didn't worry about course evaluations. They didn't worry about publishing. And so that I think we are being forced to change now because of the decline of the liberal arts. And maybe that will get us back to the ground zero that, that David is talking about. Mm -hmm. But in the process, it is very, very stressful. And my department, my English department at um, the last place I taught, we actually had conversations as to whether it is ethical to encourage our best students to go to grad school these days because there are not jobs out there. Mm -hmm. And the trouble is a lot of schools want to say, oh yes, we, we had a student that got into Yale. We have a student and they are, they're thinking about their own prestige mm -hmm. rather than what's best for the student. So ground zero, that's the move forward. <laughs> that's, what we that's what we've decided. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, thank you for actually contributing to good because I hope the liberating arts is actually starting some of these steps in the process and ask, learning to ask the right questions. I think even talking to you guys today helped me see some new questions and some new ways of thinking about these things that I hadn't before. So I really do appreciate that. I appreciate all your work at the Wade Center all your work on Lewis and Sayers, it's so important to help us remember the things that shouldn't be lost. Thank you.